James Lawrenson, the Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. Today, I'm joined by two experienced former Australian diplomats, Professor Jocelyn Che and Richard Bronowski. Jocelyn Che's career in Australia-China relations spanned 20 years at the Departments of Trade and Foreign Affairs with three postings in the People's Republic of China in Hong Kong culminating in her appointment as Consul General in Hong Kong from 1992 to 1995. Prior to her appointment as Consul General, Jocelyn worked as the Director of the China Branch of the International Wall Secretariat from 1988 to 92. She was awarded an Australia-China Council Medal in November 2008 and was made a member of the Order of Australia in January 2009. Professor Che was a founding director of the Australia-China Institute of Arts and Culture at Western Sydney University and is currently a visiting professor at the University of Sydney. And I should add, she's also a member of the ACRI Advisory Board. Welcome to the ACRI Podcast, Jocelyn. Thank you. We also have Richard Bronowski. Richard Bronowski served in multiple diplomatic roles over more than 30 years with postings in Tokyo, Myanmar, Iran and the Philippines before his appointments as ambassador to Vietnam, the Republic of Korea, as well as to Mexico and concurrently the Central American Republics and Cuba. Following his diplomatic postings, um, Mr. Bronowski became adjunct professor in media and communications at the University of Canberra and then the University of Sydney. In these roles, he initiated a scheme that has enabled over 130 Australian media students to work in a total of 14 Asian newsrooms since 2000. He was also a former president of the New South Wales branch of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Welcome to the ACRI podcast, Richard. Thank you. As the Australia-China bilateral relationship has grown since the establishment of formal diplomatic relations in 1972, discourse on the relationship has tended to be dominated by economic and strategic issues. But of course, human rights is a part of the relationship and it sometimes struggles to get the attention given to the developments in the economic and strategic realms, yet it's no less pressing. In recent years, it has become increasingly clear that the People's Republic of China seeks greater participation in and leadership of the global order through both hard power and soft power. However, its growing international clout correlates with growing concern from members of the international community around adherence or lack thereof, to international standards of human rights. Last year, governments and observers like Human Rights Watch noticed with significant concern reports of the mass internment of up to one million ethnic Uyghurs in the Xinjiang Autonomous Region. The Australian government and opposition share in these concerns, as well as concerns and reports of other human rights violations, such as enforced disappearances. The PRC's opaque legal system has been another source of concern, with both PRC and non-PRC citizens subject to arbitrary detention, often with basic rights, such as that to legal representation, denied. Jocelyn and Richard will discuss human rights with us today in the People's Republic of China, talking about Australia's response, past, present and future, the challenges associated with managing a dialogue on human rights in the Australia-China relationship, and more. Jocelyn, I'll start with you. Your career in diplomacy effectively coincided with the first 20 years of Australia's diplomatic relationship with the People's Republic of China. 
How did the treatment of human rights evolve in the PRC over the course of your diplomatic career, and how has it evolved since? Thank you. Well, I think the first point to be noted is that the Chinese Communist Party, which formed the government in China, has since its very foundation back in the 1920s uh, been committed to improving human rights. And we have to acknowledge that they have done a great deal. Uh, for instance, in raising the status of women, or uh, uh, giving rights to landless peasants. Um, so there have been successive reforms. Um, industrial workers, for instance, who always formed the basis of support for the party, have seen their labor rights greatly improved under the, uh, the, that regime. But there are always setbacks. It's not a straight in line of improvement. And pr just prior to our establishing diplomatic relations with China, there were 10 years of chaos, which is known as the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. And during that revolution, the rule of law was completely suspended. Millions of people suffered. They were humiliated, imprisoned, tortured, and many were even executed. It was only really in the reform period of the 1980s that you saw the restitution of the legal system and attempts to extend more democratic rights. They were very much experimental. Mm -hmm. um, things were tried out on a local basis. Uh, for instance, elections at the local government level were trialed during that period. Um, so we were quite hopeful during that time of the 1980s uh, that human rights would be greatly improved in China. Unfortunately, we had another setback, and that was in 1989, um, during the event which most of the world knows as the Tiananmen Massacre, and China calls it an incident, um, when the army was used to put down uh, protests by students and workers and, and other supporters. And that really not only represented a setback for human rights in China, but a setback in our diplomatic relations um, at the time. Uh, in this century, uh, jumping over a few years, because we can come back and talk about that later on, I think we've seen economic rights of, of people in China greatly improved. Uh, but individual rights, See, the human rights covers a great, very broad spectrum. Individual rights are accorded a much lesser priority. This is under what China calls human rights with Chinese characteristics, and it's, it is their philosophy and their policy to put, give priority to economic rights over individual rights. I'd like to add a couple of things, if that's all right, um, because... You've introduced me uh, and the roles that I've played in the Australian government and with the, um, the International Wall Secretariat. But I'd also like to say that on a personal level, <laughs> I have some observations to make. Now, my, my surname, Che, is actually a Chinese surname. My husband um, was born in China. And so through his, that family connection, I must say that um, 
We've looked on some of the nastier sides of the situation of human rights in China. His family background were classified as class enemies, and their land and their um, business was taken away from them even before 1949. So when we met, in fact, he was a refugee from the Chinese system. I mentioned this because when we're talking about human rights in China, there are always two sides to every question. It's a nuanced business. You can't just say, you know, I'm very concerned about human rights in China. We also want, all of us want to see China a strong and peaceful power. His my husband's brother went back to China. He wanted to volunteer to fight in the Korean War. He was too young. They didn't accept him, but he stayed in China. And then he disappeared during the Cultural Revolution, like hundreds of thousands of other people did. So again, you know, we have personal unhappinesses that I would like to mention. The other thing I like to say is that my very first boss, my very first job, <laughs> when I was still an undergraduate, was working for a very eccentric um, newspaper man called Francis James. And Francis James, as an Australian, uh, was detained in China in 1969 and held there until 1973, after, well after the establishment of diplomatic relations. And so, as a, uh, not only his former employee, but a friend of the family, I was very concerned about that kind of episode. And that I mentioned that because that's been only the first of a succession of Australians who have been detained and suffered arbitrary arrest in China. With the latest being... With the latest being Yang Hong Jun. We'll yes, probably right. come back mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. um, I was also... I wasn't actually in Beijing at the time of the Tiananmen Massacre in 1989, uh, but I was charged by my then employer, the um, International Wool Secretariat, with advising them with such a setback in human rights they. Uh, the managing director called me and said, every other major international company were pulling their people out of China. Right. What, should, what did I advise them that the IWS should do? Mm -hmm. I was in Hong Kong at the time. I said, give me a couple of days. I'll get on the next plane. I'll fly to Beijing and I will talk to the embassy and I'll talk to our contacts in the government and in industry and then give you advice. So I was there when, you know, you could still see the tank tracks in the, yeah. along the central avenue of Beijing. And I talked to uh, our colleagues in the embassy who had bullets that had been fired into their residential apartments. So that's another you know, direct <laughs> involvement in human rights issues. Mm. And finally, I would say, you mentioned my last posting was as Consul General Hong Kong. That coincided with the appointment of the last British governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton. And when I went to present my credentials to Chris Patton, uh, he took it as an opportunity, his first opportunity, to set out his plan for the time he was in Hong Kong, where he was determined to work 
as far as possible within the framework of the agreed mini constitution for Hong Kong uh, to secure rights, including democratic rights and uh, other human rights for the people of Hong Kong. And it was not easy, I must say, because at that time we had a Labour government in Canberra. Gareth Evans was our foreign minister. He was very suspicious of conservative, British conservative MP Chris Patton. He didn't want to believe that he wasn't up to the usual sort of British tricks. Um, but I was instrumental, I think, in persuading him that what Patton was doing was very important, attempt to secure the rights for continuing human rights for, for the citizens of Hong Kong. And we were, I think, his strongest supporters during yeah. that period. Okay, okay. That's a broad a very, perspective, yeah. um, personal, professional. Uh, and bringing in Hong Kong, I think I would like to stress that when we talk about human rights in China, uh, we must also observe what's happening in Hong Kong. Particularly yes, today. Yes, particularly today, sure. yes. But, and we have a large Australian population there. Right, okay, all right. Richard, I might pivot to you now. Now, you've, Jocelyn's diplomatic um, postings in the People's Republic of China and Hong Kong, you've had a diverse set of postings, um, including some countries that sometimes get lumped into the same bucket, such as Vietnam. I'm not sure if that's accurate to do that, but if that, that's the way some people would also discuss human rights issues in Vietnam, um, just as they discuss human rights issues in China. When you hear, when you look at the Australian government's assessments and, and responses um, to human rights issues in China, are there differences in the way that the Australian government does it across countries that, that you observed as a former ambassador in some of these other places? Well, I have to say, first off, that the Australian government is quite uh, reactive and inconsistent in its uh, application of human rights concerns. Usually, in my experience, over 34 years as a diplomat abroad for Australia, the human rights representations we are asked to make as, as representatives of Australia are based on uh, activism at the private level to the government, saying you've got to do something about this or that or the other, and then we go in. I have to also say that, to my mind, in the posts I've been in, human rights has always been there in the background, but it has never been something that made me stay awake at night because okay. I had other, other fish to fry. You're listening to the ACRI podcast with me, James Lawrenson, and my guests, Jocelyn Che, visiting professor at the University of Sydney and former Australian diplomat, and Richard Bronowski, a public affairs commentator and also a former Australian diplomat. Today we're talking about the role of human rights in the Australia People's Republic of China relationship. So, Jocelyn, you've just given an overview of human rights, how they've developed in China. Um, I was wondering if I could follow up quickly with some comment from you on how Australian responses have changed around human rights yeah. in dealing with yeah. China? Well, at the moment, we're in a bit of abeyance. Nothing very much is happening. Uh, very briefly, um, since 1997, there were 15 rounds of an official dialogue on human rights with China, uh, but nothing in the last four years. Uh, there's been a technical assistance program 
we had Kevin Rudd mentioned human, uh, human rights in Tibet, famous speech he made in 2008 in Beijing. Uh, we had the Dalai Lama meeting John Howard. Um, we had a problem with the leader of the of what Uyghur independence movement, Rebia Kedir, came here in 2009. Uh, fast forward to Scott Morrison. Uh, he's made one speech about our relationship with China. He didn't mention human rights at all in that speech. So we really, as Richard has said, we have a rather uncoordinated uh, response mm. to human rights, mm. up and down, depending on what the US is doing or other countries are doing or what representations are received in Canberra. This is mm. why I was glad to be asked to write a policy brief uh, for China Matters and set out some of the options that we should look at to recalibrate our approach. Well, let's follow it. That's a perfect lead into my next question, yes. Jocelyn, which is one of the things you talked about in that um, excellent policy brief was the possibility, in some cases, of Australia engaging in um, coordinated, targeted sanctions. So I'd be keen to hear what you had in mind there and, and what sort of threshold would that sort of response kick in? Um, right. Well, the, the first and vital question, I think, is consistency. And um, we have to make sure that we apply the same standards not only to China, um, but to every country in the world. If we set out what we believe human rights are and what Australia's commitment to them is, uh, then we should look, first of all, at our own record and we should look at, for instance, the death penalty. Let's take that as an example. Um, more executions, judicial executions, are carried out in China than in the whole of the rest of the world. But the United States also uses the death penalty. We shouldn't just be objecting to it in China. We should object to it in, the, in other countries too. And we also, you know, when obviously what happens to Australian citizens is a priority for, for Canberra because they will be lobbied very hard uh, by the friends and supporters of that very... Um, so if we're going to coordinate our response on issues like that, uh, let us say with the Canadians, if Canada asks for us to, to coordinate a response on the arrest of their citizens, uh, we sh then we would be more likely to get their uh, support for lobbying that we might make for Australian citizens. So coordination is always best. And it always should be reciprocal. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to that, one of the important recommendations, I think, in, contained in my policy, is that Australia should pass the Australian equivalent of the Magnitsky Act, which was recently passed in the United States. It's named for a very well-known Soviet defender of human rights. And it allows the US government to respond by cancelling visas, not granting visas, or even seizing the assets mm. of those people who are known and as far as you can't actually say proved to be, but um, generally supposed mm. to be the people who have been 
responsible for the violation of human rights, such as uh, the Russians who were involved in the apprehension of, of Sergei Man Magnitsky okay. in that case. Right. Richard, if the Australian government put in place its own Mag Magnitsky Act mm. and started taking a tougher approach to dealing with human rights issues in China, how do you think the Chinese government would respond to that? I don't think they'd respond at all well. They regard human rights in China as an internal matter. They don't like external uh, criticism of it. We've had many examples where countries have been punished for uh, talking about human rights in China uh, and where they've been punished in trade senses and other ways. Uh, I think that uh, if Australia was to do this, it would have to have a much more coherent government than it does at present and I think we have to wait to see whether that will come about. But it seems to me that uh, it's unlikely to happen, but if it did happen, the Chinese would react very badly and the Australian government is very aware that the trade element of our relationship with China is so important. They don't want to upset that. They don't want to uh, compromise or, or handicap Australian traders with China. Mm, okay. All right, Jocelyn, Richard, let me put one final question to both of you um, for, your, for, your, for your brief response. If the PRC doesn't respond well, if we, if we took it place a more assertive approach and the PRC didn't respond well, how do we manage that? How do we keep the economic relationship, Richard, that you just mentioned going, which we all agree is in a national interest, um, but I think we also agree that uh, you know, not compromising on human rights is also in a national interest. So, Jocelyn, how do, we, how, do we, how do we manage that juggling act? Well, in any relationship, there will always be matters of dispute that come up, and you can't take issue with every one of them. Mm. But when it comes to something which is basic, uh, then if you don't take a stand on it, you won't be respected by the other party. And to my mind, human rights is the ultimate bottom line. Uh, and we, I think we would gain respect from a lot of people in China. You have to remember that you know the, what the, a lot of the huffing and puffing and blustering and come. Uh, it's it's not long term. I mean, at the time of Chris Patton, Gareth Evans and I and Australian government in general were called all kinds of bad names, but we survived. We're back. To <laughs> <laughs> okay, and Richard, what advice would you have for the Australian government to manage these challenging issues? Well. Depends how challenging you want to make it. I think the whole relationship with China is challenging at present. Human rights is one of the elements. But, you know, what the Chinese are doing in the South China Sea, uh, their relationship with the United States and President Trump and how he's trying to uh, start a trade war, uh, China's Belt and Road strategy, which we haven't really joined onto with any, any enthusiasm. All these are issues. I think we have to keep... Uh, human rights in perspective. I agree with Jocelyn that it's an important element, it's part of our, our wellsprings, but we must remember that Australia is very selective in the way it promotes human rights. We have human rights violations of an egregious kind against the Aborigines and against, uh, against asylum seekers. So, and the Chinese are the first to say, let's, let's not call the pet kettle black, you've got your own problems. We're defensive about that, and when we uh, 
uh, when we react to a human rights violation in China after the United States does, we're seen, quite rightly, I think, by, by the Chinese as a bit of a satrap of, of uh, Washington. Mm. So it, it's a selective thing. I just have to say again, though, that our present government, let's hope that the new one might be better, but our present government is in no condition or, or, or situation or mental uh, situation present to make any kind of constructive policy about human rights in China or anywhere else. Mm, this issue of consistency seems to be coming from both of you. Look, we might finish it there. Jocelyn Che, yeah. Richard Bronowski, thank you so much for your time for joining the ACRI thank podcast you. today. Thanks very much. You can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or listen to all our episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There, you'll also find more about ACRI's research and events. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.